follow him. And it's in the Bible, we read the word disciple, his disciples, the people that he calls to follow him are called disciples. And when we're called to be a disciple, the, the way in which we live is called discipleship. And we read stories in the Bible about Jesus calling, right, Peter, James, and John, who are fishermen. We read stories of Jesus calling Matthew, the tax collector. We read stories of Jesus calling people to follow him. And we see they're called disciples. And even after Jesus ascended, you know, he died on the cross and rose again and ascended to heaven, people who followed Jesus were still called disciples. In the book of Acts, we see the people who believed in Jesus, even though they didn't know him personally and, or saw him personally or heard him teach personally, were called disciples if they believed what the apostles were teaching. And so we're still today called disciples. So learning to follow Jesus more and more is called discipleship. A disciple is one who has heard the call of Jesus, has responded to that call by repenting of our sins, right? Believing the gospel, believing the good news about Jesus, that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and then following him, doing the things that Jesus does, saying the things that Jesus has said. Jesus is our leader. So just like playing follow the leader, we are playing follow the leader with Jesus, though it's not a game, it's our lives. We're to follow what he does and what he says. And this morning we're going to learn or maybe be reminded of what discipleship is and how we are to live as disciples of Jesus by hearing God's word through the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus. So let's read from Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse... 1 through verse 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying, or the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have, been, who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in the ways of Jesus, to follow 
him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just have two more weeks in our series, Shalom in the Home and Everywhere Else. Last week, we looked at the Shalom of the body or the body of Christ. We were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 31, and we said from our text that we often think of ourselves as self-sufficient or we think of ourselves not having individual gifts that others need. We kind of fall in one way or the other. Paul reminds us that we aren't self-sufficient, that but at the same time, we are individuals and have an important role to play and to serve in the life of the body, right? We all are important, just as all of our body parts are important, we are all important in the body of Christ. We all have certain roles to play just as our different body parts have different roles to play. And we saw that in Christ, we are able to live as a community of shalom in unity, together as one body, diversity, each of us having our own gifts and backgrounds, and mutuality, needing one another, not being self-sufficient. This morning, we follow our reminder on body life, what it means to live as the body of Christ by looking at discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, and how is our discipleship a part of the shalom that Jesus brings? Discipleship in Scripture is characterized by establishing a fundamental life relationship to the person of Jesus, not merely his teaching. You know, sometimes when we think of discipleship, we think of like a a program where we sit and we study and we learn more about like head knowledge, which we need. We need doctrine. We need to learn what God's Word says. We need to learn who Jesus was and is. We need to learn from God's word, but sometimes we think of discipleship as stopping there. The discipleship is merely just more information that we just keep taking in and taking in, but discipleship is not just about the teaching. Discipleship is a fundamental life relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. It's knowing Jesus intimately as he knows us, following what he says and what he does, right? Discipleship is characterized as no longer being servants, but as friends. We're not merely acquaintances with Jesus. We are honored guests at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are no longer orphans. We are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And yet we often forget. And so we need to be reminded how to live as disciples, right? That's how Paul begins this part of his letter to Titus. Remind them, right? Remind the believers, remind the disciples there in Crete where you are serving, remind them. And just as Paul told Titus to remind them, we as well need to be reminded We need to be reminded how to live as disciples. We need to be reminded of whose we are and who we are. 
We see in our text today that Jesus calls us as his disciples by grace for a life of grace. Jesus calls us as his disciples by grace for a life of grace. First, we're called by grace, and we see this in verses 3 through 7, right? He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right? Paul is reminding us, he's reminding the, the believers in Crete, he's reminding us that this is who we were apart from Jesus Christ. This is who we were. And sometimes who we still struggle not to be. This is who we were. And so he reminds us that we ourselves were like this. But it's the one but Jesus is the one who initiates that we are no longer like this. Right? The next word is but Paul has some great buts in Scripture, right? This here, we see but when the goodness and loving kindness of God. In our passage from Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul has outlined some of these very similar things that he writes to Titus here in terms of who we were apart from Christ, he says, but God, being rich and mercy, here he says, but the, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, right? Paul is reminding us that this is who we were, this is who we still struggle to be, but there's God. God in Christ is the one who initiates Apart from this call, there is no recognizable motive for anyone to be a disciple and follow Jesus. There is no discipleship apart from this call. Paul is reminding us there's all these ways in which we once lived apart from Christ. And there's no recognizable reason that we would no longer be living this way but for God's mercy, but for God's goodness, but for God's loving kindness. Right? There's no reason because we don't recognize our need. We don't recognize that the world, the culture that we live in are a part of these things. We are doing and living in these ways. And it seems very natural, very much as who we are. But Paul reminds us we are saved not because of our goodness or righteousness, but according to God's mercy. Because the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Right? When Jesus calls his disciples, they don't have any CV, any resume that would even remotely <laughs> make them qualified for the call to be disciples of Jesus. You had fishermen, tax collector, a zealot, 
You had others that we aren't privy to what they, what their vocation was. But we do know from the way that the Pharisees responded that these men that Jesus called to be his, his inner ring of disciples and even those in the outer rings were looked at as, who are these people? They're sinners. They're those who don't deserve this. They're those who don't have anything to give from a worldly perspective. Jesus initiates his call. And it's clear that it's his choice. In John 15, he reminds us it's his choice in whom he calls. The response to the call involves recognition and belief in Jesus' identity, obedience to his call, and counting the cost of allegiance to him. His call is the beginning of something new. It means losing one's old life and finding new life in the family of God through obeying the will of his Father. It is by grace that we have been called. It is by grace and loving kindness and goodness that our Savior has appeared and saved us. Not because we've done anything, not because we've started the process, not because we've washed ourselves up, we've not, not preparing ourselves for, for this call for Jesus. And Paul reminds us of that here. He says he saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit right? We haven't done that. We haven't cleaned ourselves up. We haven't done anything that's prepared. It's the Holy Spirit who has washed us and regenerated us, renewed us. Whom he poured out on us richly. Not just a little, right? He poured it out richly. I, I saw a meme that a friend of mine uh, posted on, on Facebook and he, the quote was, okay, Baptists, you got us on this one. It was like how Baptists eat Oreos and how Presbyterians eat Oreos. And you know, the Baptist is dunking the Oreo and the Presbyterian is just dipping his finger and in, in like in, uh, sprinkling the milk on the Oreo. The picture here is the Oreo being dunked, the milk being poured out. It's not just a little bit. It's all of it. It's being poured out on us. The Holy Spirit is being dumped upon us. It's not just a little. It's a lot. It's all that we need. It's all that he has to give us. We have been richly blessed. We have been richly poured out upon through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we are justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by his grace and we live by his grace. We live by his grace because we have this hope of eternal life. As I've mentioned before, this, the, the use of eternal life by Jesus and the apostles is not something that we one day achieve but it is something that has begun now in Christ Jesus and continues for eternity. It's not just merely 
temporal, it actually describes the kind of life that we in Christ have. A new life, a new hope. Heirs of all that is Christ is ours. As heirs of Christ, all that is his is ours. This is all by grace. The call of discipleship is one of grace. One that we've been called into, one that we've been called to participate in. This calling is expressed in the pattern of divine initiative and human response. It's, it's the same way it has always worked throughout Scripture. Yes, in Jesus Christ it is most fully seen and fully known, but you remember throughout Scripture, it is always the promise of God, right? In the Old Testament, in Exodus, when he brings the people out of Egypt, as we read in Leviticus, right? God was with them. And the, it may have been at times scary and powerful and overwhelming, but he was with them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He dwelt among them in the tabernacle, He spoke to Moses as a man speaks to another man, Scripture says. God was with them. The people of Israel heard him speak. The promise has always been, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the covenant promise. Discipleship is the covenant Right? It's not something that's added on in the New Testament. It's not something, it is the covenant that God has made with his people from eternity past through eternity future. It is the covenant that has always been a part of God's dwelling with his people. I will be your God and you shall be my people. That call from Yahweh is reiterated by the call of Jesus, God in the flesh. Follow me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And in this call, God has called his people to represent him on earth as it always has been and continues to be. To be his image bearers, to be the ones who rule and reign in his absence, so to speak though he is never absent from us. It's a call to be with him in every circumstance of life, to be transformed in personal character, to be like him. And that calling is at the heart of biblical discipleship, both in the Old and New Testaments. And that grace that we have received, that call of grace into covenant relationship with Jesus into this discipleship relationship of covenant is for a life of grace. We see that in verses 1 through 2 and 8 through 11. What does this life of grace look like? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, before we look to see exactly what Paul is saying here, I need to remind us 
of whom Paul is writing to. He's writing to Titus on the island of Crete. Titus is the pastor, so to speak, for lack of a better term, of this church in Crete. Maybe one of the pastors of the churches in Crete. Why is it important for us to understand who Paul is writing to here? He's writing to Titus and by extension the believers in Crete. Well, Paul reminds us why it's important for us to understand the context in which he writes when he writes earlier in the letter in chapter 1. In verse 13, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul is calling the believers, the disciples in Crete, to live in such a way in a culture that does not value the way in which he is calling them to live. He's calling them to live in such a way, to live this life of grace in a culture that, quite frankly, will take advantage of them by living this way. Right? <laughs> Cretans are always liars. Now, not everybody in Crete, I'm sure, lived this way. Particularly, I mean, the Christians were there. Hopefully, they weren't living this way. But in general, <laughs> this is the way that the culture functioned. They are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Right? And Paul specifically addresses those things and says, be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Wait, to people like that? Like, that's the foundation of which these rulers and authorities are functioning from? They are liars? They're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons. It sounds somewhat similar to what we hear today about our rulers and authorities. Oh, they're liars. They're evil. Man, they get nothing done. Paul goes on to say, speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Notice this is not, that he's not referring to people within the church here. They are included. But he's speaking about those who are outside the church, how we as disciples of Christ are to interact and live with those. He, sa he, says, this, he says, be subject, be submissive. It doesn't only imply a passive subservience, right? Submission in the context, in the biblical context, is about using gifts and abilities to a higher purpose to support the one who is in authority above you. That's what submission actually means, to use gifts and abilities to support the one, to honor the one, to help the one who is in authority over, over you in the biblical context, in the biblical sense. 
And so when he's saying be submissive, and then he goes on, he said, and obedient, be ready for every good work, right? He's saying what, we've, what we talked about last week, all the gifts and abilities that you as the body of Christ have, the individual gifts and abilities that you have, use those to support, to be submissive to those in authority, right? To the rulers and authorities and to be obedient to them. It's not merely this kind of passive submission. It is an active expression of our gifts in support of a higher purpose. Paul not only requires obedience, but always also this readiness, as I said, to do whatever is good as loyal and contributing members of society, to function out of the grace that you have received, of the gifts that you have received. This is how you use them for the good of others, even those who are liars and evil and lazy. But this has, this has far-reaching aspects. It has this subject to rulers and authorities. In, in our age of culture wars, we need to take note of this. We need to see this in terms of the context of our rulers and authorities, how we vote, the ethics we use in political debate and action, the laws we obey, the legislation we seek, the language we use to discuss governmental issues and officials at church, at work, around our dinner tables, in all places, we need to be aware of how we actually speak and, and think and function in these ways. All these areas of life are affected by Paul's instruction to be subject to rulers and authorities. This subjection is further defined, as I said, by the instructions, slander no one, be peaceable, not contentious, to be considerate, literally gentle, to show true humility, mildness, and meekness. This has been particularly difficult in our last several months, year. We see Christians speaking evil of others. We see them quarreling, not being gentle, not showing courtesy to all people. I don't know if you've seen this meme, and it was one that spoke to me, and I had to laugh because it's, you know, there's this urge every time I see something on social media. It's a, um, um, a chameleon on a branch next to a tree frog, and the chameleon has his hand over the tree frog's mouth. And on the chameleon, it says, Holy Spirit, and under the tree frog, it says, the Holy every time... I want to uh, comment on someone's political post. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, Paul says. He reminds us that we might actually live as a life of grace. Right? He, he lays this out for us. And, he, and he's, he reminds us, just as we looked at already, that the reason he says that we are to live this way is because we too, apart from Christ, are like that. We have received grace that we did not deserve. We have received the riches of God's mercy and grace that we have not deserved. 
Not because we had it all together or even still do, but because of his grace. But politics isn't the only application. The rulers and authorities applies to every aspect of life. It applies to us and how we interact with our teachers in school. It applies when we build or repair buildings, including churches, to f- follow city codes. Right? I had, I'm uh, redoing or I'm do, uh, finishing my basement, and you know Adam can attest to this. Like I have a, a friend who who's a, a contractor, and, and he came over to give me some ideas of th- how to do things and different things. He goes, "Well, you could do this. It's not really to code, but you don't doesn't really matter because it's in your basement and you're." Do- but no, it does matter. And he wasn't saying it like, uh, j- he was just saying, you know, that those codes are for other aspects of construction and it's not technically the code, but it's just a basement and it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. It is, a, it is something that we as Christians need to, to wrestle with, right? What are the ways in which authorities over us have set things in place that we are to follow, even if we don't agree with it, right? How we conduct our business according to laws of commerce, driving according to traffic laws, a big one that I need to be reminded of, run schools according to state mandates and standards, pay workers according to government regulations, or pay taxes according to the laws of a city, state, and nation, All of these areas of life and even more are subject to the civil authority according to Scripture. And they require an examination and correction of virtually every area of our lives to submit and to be obedient to rulers and authorities, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect harmony or courtesy toward all people. You see, the inconvenience of proper authority does not lessen our obligation to submit to rulers for at least two reasons, and they involve the progress of the gospel. It's not just merely that this is how we should live for the common good, though that is a good thing and a good reason, but it also, Paul is tying this, right? He's tying our life in the world that we live in, in the culture that we live in, in the place that we live in. He's tying that directly to the gospel, to the proclamation of the gospel by God's people. And he's saying the inconvenience of proper authority does not lessen our obligation for at least these two reasons. First, it relates to the reputation of the gospel. And the second relates to the authority that it proclaims and to those who proclaim it. We must make sure that we do not damage our stance in the political arena with words or actions that indicate unwillingness on our part to be subject to proper authority. Right? If, if we pick and choose what authority we are going to submit to and obey, it becomes an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's word is an authority that we must have submit to and obey. And if we aren't willing to submit to and obey and in this area, where else are we not willing to submit and obey to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that brings us to the second one, that the gospel requires the people of God to honor authority 
is that the gospel cannot progress if God's people only honor the authority they find agreeable, right? Ultimately, there's going to be a a point in time where God's people are saying, this is what the gospel says. This is the authority that God has placed in your life. And people are going to respond, I don't like that. And you'll say, but this is what God's word says. Oh, really? How come you don't submit to the authority of God's word? How come I have not experienced that or seen that in your life? Many of us seem to think we have a responsibility to submit to the authority only as long as we agree with it or as long as it is fair in our eyes or as long as it does not require too much inconvenience. But while it is true that we should resist authority that requires ungodliness, how can we expect others to honor the scriptural authority that confronts their sin if we will not honor the authority that we don't like? And if people of the church will not honor authority, the word of God loses its credibility for those outside of the church. You see, that's what it means to walk as a follower of Christ. As those who have lavishly received grace, we're to live lives of grace. It does not mean that we agree with everyone. It does not mean that we do not have opinions. It does not mean that we do not wrestle with those things. But the way in which we do it, the way in which we speak and live and act in those things has ramifications beyond just whether or not I have to personally do something or not, don't do something. This life of grace does not, is not just how we live with those outside of the church, as I said, but with also those within the church, for those in the body of Christ. Verses 8 through 11, I'm not going to take much time with this because it's basically what I've already said. But the saying is trustworthy, Paul says, and I want you to, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Look, Paul is reminding us that within the body of Christ, there are many ways that we can get caught up in things like I talked about last week that are not the main things. And we can argue and we can make all kinds of disagreements and we can divide and have quarrels over things that are not central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that aren't central to the work of the body of Christ together. It doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements. Paul actually, earlier in the letter, is outlining some things that are very important for us (laughs) to confront Right? He says, confront the Judaizers, those who are adding things to the gospel, that you have to be like this, that's Jesus plus this. Yes, those are the people that we confront. Those are the people that need to be brought in 
to conformity with God's word. But most of what we disagree on, most of what we quarrel about, most of what we have dissension about within the body of Christ are things that do not matter to that level. Again, some of those things may matter, right? I just made a joke about Baptists and Presbyterians. We differ on baptismal mode and time and place but they should not divide us. Those things should not divide us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Ultimately, they may divide us in terms of our practice, but they should not divide us in terms of who we are in Christ Jesus. And he has a stern warning for those who would stir up division. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Right? He's saying that those who stir up division, those who continually seek to divide over secondary and tertiary and, like I said, whatever, quatriary uh, issues in the church are those who just do it for division. They're warped, he said, and sinful. What he's saying is that they really don't understand the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't understand the grace that they received and that living out the discipleship of Jesus is about following him in the grace that he has given us. I think an application for us, particularly in our time. Are there those that you've become estranged who are brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe you've become estranged because of different political views. Maybe you've become estranged because of a differing opinion on this or that. Have you become estranged because of an unwillingness to be full of grace and how we engage with them? Right, we are to bear with one another. Right, as Paul reminded us last week, there's a more excellent way in love. There's so much division right now. And much of it, quite frankly, is not over the core thing. It's not over the person and work of Jesus. It's over so many other things. Might we seek to live lives full of grace that bring shalom in the church and outside the church and how we live as followers of Christ, as his disciples. I'm gonna close with reading 
something that my friend James Kessler wrote. He's, I've referenced him a couple weeks ago. He's a wonderful writer. He writes this in thinking about the body of Christ and our discipleship and those who are baptized members of this community. He begins, there are two communities and every human being is a member of one or the other. The first community is the community of the world, a community that works on spec. You are what you do. Your value is quantifiable. No one is ever truly safe. But there is something holy fairy tale like, inexplicable about the mystery of the of God's present in the church. About the mystery of God present in the church. Whereas in that first community, everything is bottom line. Everything is what you earn, what you do, making the grade. Everything has to add up. But here. In the church, the body of Christ, as his disciples, on occasion, two plus two equals five. Lead turns to gold. The beast becomes human. Sleeping beauty awakes. Wardrobes have passageways. Sinners become saints. Enemies are welcome at a feast. The dead in Christ rise, and in my Father's house are many rooms. Every tear is wiped away. The church is guardian of deep mystery. It is good for us to see some things that we cannot easily explain. They keep their hooks in us. They keep us humble. A baptism into discipleship is for everyone in the room who need to see again a window into the strangeness of the mercy of God. God uses baptism to cover us in a community of mysterious, unexplainable, inexhaustible grace. May we live out that grace as we have received it as disciples of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be those who live in light of that great grace that we have been given. Lord, help us by your spirit that you've poured out lavishly upon us You've poured out so richly. Lord, help us to walk in your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.